all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, climate change is class war. Inflation is class war. Ending abortion care is class war. The history of society is a struggle between the two classes. And more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. The line is open, folks. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the next program. You can leave your bad boss stories, your organizing wins, your topic suggestions, your questions, anything at all, all on our voicemail box. Um... And if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us online newly on TikTok. We are newly on the TikTok. Um, Joe, our uh, post-production visual guy who does Graphics our YouTube, guru. Graphics guru. He started uh, putting us up some... Uh, TikTok videos. We're also, of course, on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all that good stuff. Wherever you find your podcasts, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our new hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm or... Become a patron on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. Reach out to me for more details on that. Um, sorry if my voice is a little is a little weird. I got a cold uh, last week, and I still have some of that leftover congestion, you know? Um, and... Uh, uh, but I'm feeling a lot better. Feeling a lot better, but but still a little bit congested. Um, I did take a, a COVID test multiple times, and it came up negative. So fortunately, I do think it's just a cold. Uh, but it's still not fun. It's still not fun. Fortunately, I have sick leave, so I was able to take take some time off work to uh, uh, 
you know, to recover, to rest, things like that. Uh, just <laughs> on Thursday, I literally, I just slept all day. Like I didn't do, I didn't do, I literally slept all day. Didn't do anything except sleep. It, it was great. Highly recommend it. Um, Turns out sick leave, pretty important. Sick leave is pretty important. Yeah. Uh, think a union for that if you've got it. And you should do a union about it if you don't have it. Uh, because it's great. Recommend it. Um, and we'll go ahead and, and knock out this segment really quick before we bring on our, our, our guest for the program. Uh, last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week uh, where we take a look at Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? You can read his newsletter on whogetsthebird.substack.com. He compiles everything that happened in a week in the labor movement in the entire United States. He comes through the NLRB filings. He comes through local news uh, reports and things like this to figure out what's going on in the labor movement. And so we come through his newsletter to pull out what happened in the South, because that's, you know, really the most important, uh, you know, we, you know, Yankees are okay, but we really, we, we want to know what's happening to the real people, right? Um, <laughs> Just kidding. We love our Yankee brothers and of sisters, course. but we, we uh, are Southerners born and bred. That's right. That's right. We're an Alabama Union talk show, so we got to figure out what's going on in the South. So let's go ahead and jump right into it in new organizing. Um, we've got 452 Starbucks workers at 18 stores filed for elections, including in Belverde, Texas, and Sumter, South Carolina. A hundred workers at a Target in Christiansburg, Virginia, filed for a union election with the IWW and then withdrew the petition, unfortunately. Of course, this is what happened with the Amazon Labor Union, so not going to count it out just yet, but we'll keep an eye on that. 79 editorial employees for The Hill in D.C. are organizing with the Washington Baltimore News Guild. 36 drivers for ATS Group in Atlanta are organizing with ATU Local 732 as are three clerks for First Transit. 28 nursing home workers at Livingston Place in D.C. are organizing with 1199 SEIU. 28 drivers for U.S. Foods out of Charlotte, North Carolina are unionizing with the Teamsters, Local 71. 14 food service workers at Bodo Bagels in Charlottesville, Virginia are joining UFCW Local 400. Five aircraft simulator techs for Lockheed Martin in Marietta, Georgia are joining the Machinists. For Convergence Magazine, Steve Early and Suzanne Gordon have a fascinating piece on the union, uh, on the union efforts among the Texas National Guard. You may recall that in January, the DOJ officially opened the door to state National Guard unionization efforts, though that was centered on a Connecticut effort. That's fascinating. Indeed. In election wins and losses, 467 workers at 20 Starbucks voted to unionize in the past two weeks with a whopping 87% win margin, 237 yes votes to 34 no votes, including in Leesburg, Virginia, Miami Springs, and Jacksonville, Florida, times two, and Greenville, South Carolina. Workers United also lost four stores, but that remains a pretty stellar win rate. Among the four stores that they lost, 107 
prominent Starbucks workers voted, uh, including uh, voted against unionizing at four locations, including in Estero, Florida. And uh, that was a combined 33 yes votes to 51 no votes against joining the Workers United organizing tidal wave. Um, Another eight workers for Badger Daylighting, this time in Fort Pierce, Florida, voted seven to one to join the Operating Engineers Local 487. All three fights, uh, flight simulator techs in Midland City, Alabama, voted to join the machinists. 21 workers for diversified gas and oil in Charleston, West Virginia, voted 4 to 17 against unionizing with the steel workers and seven security guards at an amusement park in Kissimmee, Florida, voted 6 to 1 to join the SPFPA. In strikes and bargaining, Starbucks workers united baristas in Columbia, South Carolina, went on strike before they even had their union vote. They then won their election. In what seems like it could be a big deal, despite almost no press coverage, 7,000 car haul Teamsters could be on strike across the country at six national Teamster car haul employers as soon as June 1st. The union has publicly committed to not extend the current contract and is taking and is currently talking strike authorization votes across locals. Car haul is one of the core legacy industries of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and while it's way smaller than it used to be, uh, it is one of the signature national contracts and could be seen as a bit of a preview run for national negotiations at UPS next year. 3,000 Arconic steelworkers in Iowa, Tennessee, New York, and Indiana nearly unanimously Uh, nearly unanimously authorized a strike and came away with what seems like a pretty impressive contract uh, with 20% raises over four years being the main headline just before their strike deadline. And after public pressure, a blocked strike threat uh, by railway workers and probably most crucially over 700 railway workers quitting bnsf has finally walked back its insane new attendance policy this more perfect union video on the saga is worth a watch it strikes me as distinctly the sort of band-aid that can't fix the gaping wounds of deteriorating conditions for rail workers uh, but then again, if rail labor is, uh, but then again, rail labor is kneecapped by the Railway Labor Act. So we'll see what happens there. And finally, in political fights, the Independent Congressional Workers Union won a key vote in the House of Representatives, formally granting them the legal right to organize a union. Now they just have to go ahead and do it. And uh, whether Senate staffers follow suit is less clear. So we're going to take a break really quick while we bring on our first guest. It's going to be Matt Huber talking about his new book, Climate Change as Class War. We're really excited to bring him on, so make sure you stay tuned. We will be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. 
please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only union talk radio program this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller if you've got anything to add feel free to give us a call the phone number is 844-899-TVLR climate change as class war is a new book that seeks to reframe the conversation around climate change by Matthew T. Huber, professor of geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. You can buy his new books online at Powell's, a union bookstore, and if you purchase his book through the union's link, 
7.5% of your purchase goes directly to their strike fund. So that is very cool. Consider purchasing his book there. Matt is also our next guest. Matt, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Absolutely. So, um, like I said, you know your your book. It, it seems to me is largely an attempt to uh, uh, to try to reframe the conversation around climate change. Um, what do you feel like is wrong? with uh, the current conversation about climate change in this country? Well, there's a lot, I think. Um, I think, you know, when you hear people talk about the struggle over climate change, they often mention um, a couple problems. They often mention that there's a lot of denial of the science around climate change. And so there's uh, a lack of awareness or understanding of the truth of, of of the science of of this dire threat that that uh, really threatens uh, our species and the planet, um, and there is a lot of discussion about um, responsibility for this this uh, crisis that centers on people's consumption actions, um, and and I think rightly it focuses on how the rich tend to be more more responsible with their. Uh, high consumption lifestyles, whether it be flying a lot or um, uh, eating steak or driving a Hummer, private jets, whatever it might be. Um, Both of these, I think, uh, sort of avoid what I think is at the core of the the crisis, which is industrial production. Um, You know, this is this is climate change is ultimately a product of something that started about 200 years ago that we call the industrial revolution, which shifted energy systems to burning this stuff that we can dig out of the ground called fossil fuel. And this industrial system of production uh, reliant on fossil fuels is really at the core of the crisis. And what struck me is that um, when you go back to sort of old school socialist or working class theories of class struggle, theories of class um, conflict, in the old days, it really was centered on this struggle over industrial production, over who owns and controls the means of production and how capitalists sort of take that control over production and and, uh, shift it towards profit at all uh, other costs. And of course, workers and working class people have struggled to take their own forms of control over production, whether it be through strikes or unionization. And so this kind of old school class analysis focused on production seemed to be a much more um, accurate way to analyze the current struggle we're facing and and actually like really center it as a material struggle over how we produce things. And and uh, I think that really helps us shift away from this sometimes pretty moralistic type of politics that focuses on, do you know the science? Do you, do you believe science? Or are you um, virtuously low carbon enough in your consumption and your lifestyle and all these kind of actions you can take as an individual consumer, which again, um, every individual consumer is provisioned 
by a producer who's usually a capitalist who owns that production and is trying to seek profits on that production. So all these consumers with their lifestyles are ultimately can be linked back to for-profit capitalist producers. And I would argue the people profiting off these relationships deserve way more blame, way more responsibility, and really have the power in our society. They're the ones that really control these energy systems. And really, uh, we're going to have to take on their power if we're going to be able to uh, get get them, uh, get our production system off of fossil fuels, which is ultimately what we have to do to, to forestall this, this really serious planetary crisis. One of the things that always fascinated me about environmental politics, like is the, the, as soon as I learned this, it just... I've never been able to get it out of my mind. The fact that the, you know, crying Indian guy who was actually an Italian, um, he was that whole campaign was funded by corporations like Coca-Cola and the Mason Dixon Company in the wake of laws that were attempting to ban single use products. Right, but there, there, there was a move in the country across state legislatures and, and and things like this to attempt to get at the production of these single use products. Exactly, and the companies were able to, through a mass marketing campaign, shift the conversation from production to consumption, like saying that, oh no, it's not, it's not our fault that we're producing yeah. this terrible product. It's your right. fault for consuming it. Yes, no, absolutely, and. And, you know, that that led into all these campaigns where it, it focused on individual decisions to recycle or to or basically produce less waste. And it all became the onus is all on the individual. And what's really interesting, I think that campaign was uh, early 70s, maybe late 60s. It's just continued from that point. And there's actually a recent paper that was published that did a systematic analysis of ExxonMobil's kind of advertisements and found that there's this consistent narrative that they promote that tries to shift blame for climate change to individuals and their carbon footprints and how they consume things. And, and of course, that shifts the blame away from the Exxon Mobiles of the world. And that's what they want, right? It's it's actually quite hilarious that the, the very like concept of a carbon footprint was invented by British Petroleum. And they've they've recently you can see them tweeting out these carbon footprint calculators that asked people on Twitter to kind of, hey, get involved, find out how you can pitch in to save the climate. And um, the whole analysis of a carbon footprint, like I was saying before, assumes that responsibility and emissions are only in this realm of consumption and all the people profiting off our consumption are just erased by these quantitative methods to estimate people's so-called footprints. And so it's a really sophisticated um, uh, strategy to shift all attention and blame onto us, the consumers and and a lot of working class consumers and make it seem like they're the ones to blame. Um, And, uh, you know, in the book, I argue that actually for this kind of professional class, um, sort of middle middle class um, person that is really into the science. They also are quite materially secure and comfortable and have a level of consumption that they actually feel somewhat guilty about. I call it carbon guilt in the book. And so I actually say that this, this strategy of making it all about individual and their consumption actually appeals 
to professional middle-class people who have this anxiety about their consumption. And then they are the ones that are really promoting this kind of moralistic politics about, you know, we are the ones who have sinned. <laughs> we must, we must uh, you know, reduce, we must uh, lower our, our carbon footprints. And so they promote this. And unfortunately, uh, this kind of professional class moralistic politics really plays into the hands of big fossil capital who's, who's really got the power in this situation and are very happy to see professionals blame themselves and all of us sort of focus on individual consumption. Yeah, I was going to just say that I really appreciate what you're trying to do, which is centering this crisis with who has power uh, exactly. and who profits. Uh, right. Because I, I think you're you're so right that that is lost in this conversation, and and that's to our detriment and to the benefit of those who actually are uh, causing this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the, the way ahead. that the well, I was just going to say that the, the way that it, it seems to me that that you put the 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 argument in your book is that there there are two kind of threads that are pushing this individualistic idea of of a carbon footprint and 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 those are are the the type of neoliberal um ideology of individualism personal right. responsibility and all this and right. then also the carbon guilt among the you know the the professional managerial class who do have mm-hmm. a, a comparatively high standard of living and and, and they feel bad about it um yeah. and and so how do you feel like those kind of interact well, it's quite interesting because you can kind of trace, um, you know, if you look at the history of capitalism in the United States, you have this process of one, you could see sort of the decline of the industrial working class, which we've all been bemoaning on the socialist left. You know, you've had a process of deindustrialization where a lot of industrial factory work has either been automated or offshored and you've had a lot of hollowing out of industrial working class communities but at the same time um and of course people have commented on how that process has really widened inequality in society as a whole it sort of eroded this kind of uh middle class um industrial working class jobs that were an option for people with like high school educations uh let's say in the the 40s 50s and 60s uh, 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But alongside that process, you also have the massive expansion of higher education and um, uh, in, in society. And what I argue is that as society is becoming more unequal, which is a product of this kind of neoliberal ideology uh, that you mentioned before, um, professional class people are really trying to kind of use credentials or use degrees or use um, all sorts of, um, uh, you know, like, credentials to carve out an advantage in this increasingly unequal labor market that's defined by the hollowing out of working class power and all that. And so um, these professionals, uh, this professional class is really expanding at the same time society is moving towards this kind of neoliberal um, free market uh, type of ideology. And, And also it's quite clear that professionals themselves respond to this kind of free market idea because a lot of, because education is so central to their kind of life class project, um, they really buy into these narratives of meritocracy 
and this idea that it's like up to individuals sort of studying hard and, and being smart <laughs> and getting their credentials to, to succeed. And that success is a product of their own hard work. There's an incredible book that you, you all may have discussed or heard about um, uh, by Lily Geismer, who shows how the Democratic Party in the 80s and 90s really shifted their base from working class people to these kind of suburban affluent professionals who bought into a lot of neoliberal politics, this idea that we need to get more competitive, we need to be more meritocratic, means testing, things like that. All that kind of uh, triangulation that the the Clinton uh, regime sort of pushed onto the Democratic Party really appealed to these affluent professional suburban people. And so that that then became the base of the Democratic Party as they as they drifted away from their working class base, which is only just continuing uh, uh, decade after decade uh, since then. So. Right, right. And and so, you know, you've got this uh, the ideology and the carbon guilt is incorrectly in in your view and in our view incorrectly identifying the problem and so that is bringing them to a solution that is basically everybody has to live with less and that has somehow not been super convincing we're obviously you know we can look around and we're not living in a world with high speed rail and all electric cars and solar panels everywhere you know so the the politics of less has been less than convincing uh to to working folks why do you think that is right so um when the the professionals are kind of in charge of environmental politics and they do have this kind of guilt about their own complicity, their own consumption. Um, uh, there's a kind of narcissism <laughs> and that's, that's kind of all about them. Um, they've become quite, uh, I try to argue in the book that there's even a kind of radical variant of this kind of professional class climate politics that I, I call it anti-system radicalism. And they kind of reject capitalism and industrialism as a whole. Um, but their alternative is this sort of what, um, some of your listeners may have heard of this sort of vision of degrowth or, or uh, some of the slogans of degrowth are how to live better with less. And, and, and they really, they really hone in on sort of aggregate reductions of energy consumption and particularly in what they call the rich countries of the global North, which completely erases the fact that in a so-called rich country like the United States, there are huge proportions of people that are literally struggling to survive, barely meeting their basic needs um, and, and so this politics of less extremely appeals to a small minority of the professional class, which if you go off, um, statistics, you know, one estimate about 22% of the workforce are in these professional occupations. You can also just look at a very basic statistic that 63 ish percent of Americans don't have a college degree. So I think one kind of um, prerequisite to most professional uh, class occupations is that BA or that college degree. And that's already a minority of, of the population. And so you get a lot of these, they're in my field, like academics or, or people that work in NGOs or people that work in scientific think tanks or policy think tanks, and they're highly credentialed, they're highly, and they really, they really love this idea that we've, we've reached an ecological crisis, we need to, we need to consume less, we need to uh, sort of draw down, reduce uh, society as a whole. And that makes sense to them, because again, they feel like they're already kind of a little too excessive in their own lives, they might have a 
they might drive a car, they might have to fly for professional conferences or something. So this idea of less really does appeal to them. But again, it's a minoritarian position that only appeals to other sort of middle class of relatively comfortable professionals. And it, and again, when you look at the United States, where some stats say like 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, two thirds of Americans struggle to pay for healthcare or worry about healthcare. Um, about a third of Americans even struggle to pay their utility bills. They're, they're deciding between putting food on the table and paying their heat or their utility. So this, this politics of less, this idea that we need to live better with less doesn't really appeal because for working class people, they're already living with less and they're struggling with less. And they, they need, you know, obviously it's just basic uh, sort of working class politics that, that capitalism really exploits the working class. It makes their life worse. It makes their life insecure. And that really we need a politics that offers more to them, that offers them more security and um, uh, more power over the economic systems that control their lives. And this, this politics of less just has no very little capacity to, to offer that to the, the, the masses of workers in, in our society. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think so. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely a a big juxtaposition, you know, seeing people talk about um seeing people talk about how we need to uh <laughs> like we, everybody has to make do with less while like you said those statistics statistics talking about 64% of people living paycheck to paycheck. It, it's it's really a what like why do you think that they thought that this would be a, a good stra- like how does it even how does it even come into your head as a potentially good strategy i've been um you know i don't want to go too far with this but we <laughs> we know we know that like in this social media world we live in that increasingly creates these kind of hermetically sealed sort of information bubbles <laughs> where people kind of are all talking to the same types of people who, who sort of affirm and congratulate them on their views as being brilliant and correct. And, and, and so I've, I've seen with this kind of, these kinds of forms of professional class uh, climate politics that, you know, at least in social media, like there's just so much of people just talking to themselves and affirming what they think that there's, there becomes this kind of herd mentality of like, yes, this makes a lot of sense to us. So it must be a good idea for all of society. And there's no sort of reflexivity, like no, like sort of (laughs) self-critical sort of understanding that, Hey, maybe we should be a little um, uh, self-reflexive about that. uh, We are sort of, again, like, you know, people with college degrees are a third of society. Maybe we should start to think more about how to, how this kind of, crisis could yield a a broader mass politics, but you just don't see that kind of reflection. You just see a lot of people saying the same stuff. And again, like congratulating themselves about how brilliant they are. And, and uh, to go to the, the other uh, host's comment, like um, there's, there's very little reflection on that. We're not building the power to confront the, the people responsible for climate change and climate change just keeps getting worse and, and, you know, emissions keep going up. And, and, and despite the fact that we're not winning the struggle, we're not building the adequate mass movement, there's still this weird sort of, uh, sort of uh, self-satisfied uh, uh, a consensus amongst these people that they think they have all the right ideas and all the right um, 
logical policy proposals. It's just the, it's just society that's not coming along. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, I think in a lot of this space, there's ultimately a kind of contempt for the working class masses, this idea that these are just people that live in, you know, live, like go to malls and consume uh, hamburgers. And, 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 and ultimately, um, if you go back to the original kind of uh, people who coined the idea of the professional managerial class, they're named Barbara and John Ehrenreich, they actually were very concerned about this uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, where the so-called new left was becoming inundated with these highly educated, highly idealistic uh, political new left people who started to really turn their nose up at the masses of working class people and had this kind of an antagonistic contempt for the masses as being dupes, as being, you know, again, like consumer drones that just sort of go to the mall and don't think about things. So unfortunately, like for decades now, we've kind of had this this um, somewhat elitist click in the left and in the professional class that really looks it's it looks down on the masses. And I think, unfortunately, the climate politics that that sort of feeds into that kind of contemptful politics toward the masses. Yeah, I don't think that the stereotype of the liberal elite type of person comes from nothing. Uh, what was yeah, it that absolutely. What was it that that made you that that kind of got your gears turning, so to speak? Like, you know, I think I think that <clears throat> I I don't think that it would be uh, you know inappropriate of me to say that like this is a class that that I think that you probably belong to that that I belong <laughs> yeah. to as a degree haver in a in an office yeah. job a nice union a union job uh, working for the federal government uh you know and, and you're working for a university you have a degree you know we're part of this class but we're obviously not you know that's not the what was it that kind of brought you out of that or or that that kept you from getting into that mode of thought <laughs> I think I was in it for many, many years and it took, it's kind of like you dig yourself a hole and you have to dig yourself out. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't say it in the book, but the book is a kind of somewhat auto critique because I definitely went through all these sort of ideologies myself and I kind of had to shed them bit by bit. And it's really hard because I think this class position really makes these ideologies make a lot of sense. But I would say the turning point for many people on the left um, was really uh, 2015 for me for two reasons. <laughs> the first being I uh, had my first and only child, my daughter, who's now six. And, um, you know, it's 2015 and, I'm, and my daughter's born and I'm looking at climate change getting worse. And I'm starting to think about what kind of world is going to exist for my daughter when she reaches retirement age at, in 2080. <laughs> and and how is how is the planet going to be safe for her and then i started to see that you know we were nearing the end of uh obama's two terms as president and virtually nothing had been done to address the climate crisis despite all his lofty rhetoric about his belief in the the realness of climate change and that in fact one of the largest fossil fuel booms in u.s history happened during the obama years and, and so that made me pretty angry. And then I started to look more critically around me to see what sort of other professional uh, climate policy wonky people were putting on the table. And it was a lot about, you know, really wonky solutions like carbon taxes or carbon pricing that ultimately would they claim 
lead to the increase in the price of energy, which again is not something that a lot of working class people would welcome. And we saw in France, you know, and Macron trying to, you know, there was a big working class revolt. And and then as I started to look more, I start to see all these like hyper radical uh, climate activists that that you know that sort of want to like dismantle industrial civilization and start like local um, urban gardens as the solution. And and that didn't seem like something that's going to be viable or appeal to the masses. So I started bit by bit to really becoming more critical. And in talks I've been giving about the book. I say that my method is based on Karl Marx wrote an essay that uh, it's actually a letter where he says, we need a ruthless critique of everything existing. <laughs> and, and, and this, this sort of ruthless critical outlook that Marx took toward everyone trying to, you know, build socialism in his time, he was just, he would eviscerate all his, his, his um, fellow socialists. So that I took inspiration of that. I think the climate movement is clearly losing. It's not building the power we need to to win this fight. And so we do need a kind of ruthlessly critical uh, approach towards it. And so that's uh, around 2015. I started thinking that way. And then the other thing I should mention is around 2015, we started to finally see uh, Bernie Sanders running for president and the revival of a kind of actually somewhat kind of mass socialist politics that was suddenly on the table again. So uh, actually uh, politics was suddenly on the table again. And we were, you know, building movements that, that we thought might even be vying for state power and the heart of empire and building these. And so this idea of like, how do we build a mass politics? How do we build a sort of big majoritarian um, working class coalition with the burning campaigns was on the table as well. And, it, and then it just reinforced that like clearly this kind of professional class climate politics is not um, that it's not going to help build this kind of mass working class movement that, that Bernie and others were trying to build. Right. Right. And, and somebody mentioned in the chat that I'm not sure totally about the history of the the terminology PMC. Somebody said that it came from James Burnham, an anti-Marxist conservative uh, who sought to divide workers along arbitrarily line, arbitrary lines. Teachers and nurses are certainly working class. And I think that I don't think that you or I, I certainly wouldn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would not characterize like workers with degrees who have, you know, reasonable salaries as not working class class but yeah. uh, but I simply notice that there is a distinction culturally in how they view themselves uh, people in this profession it's something that I bump up against in my workplace as I try to uh, as I talk to people about about the union and things like like they don't even conceptualize conceptualize of themselves as workers right and even right. though they are I think in my view they are right. workers and they do need to organize and they do have far more in common with you know with a factory worker or, uh, right. you know, uh, or, or other, uh, you know, maybe more stereotypical workers than they do with the boss. And, and, and as such, they're part of the working class. And then also right. there's the, the, the trend of the proletarianization of the PMC, of the professional managerial Absolutely. class, among especially occupations like teaching and nursing but so i i don't i don't want to put words in your mouth but i would certainly not say that people who would be called pmc are not working class it's just it's just a, a flag there that like oh these people kind of these people are like they occupy an interesting space and 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 there needs to be you know understanding about that yeah no it, <laughs> it didn't make for a, a good you know i sort of when i 
decided to write this book, I wanted to organize it by these three classes, the capitalist class responsible, the professional class who's sort of shaping climate politics and the working class that can build a mass solution. But as I as I dove more deeply into these Marxist debates on class and who's part of the working class, it became clear to me that there, there's really a lot of um, um, very viable uh, uh, perspectives that would locate um, professionals in the broader working class. Because essentially, I think the broadest definition you can have is if you if you have to sell your labor power to survive uh, on the market, you're working class. And for a lot of professional people, they are also um, could be living paycheck to paycheck, or at least like if they were fired, they wouldn't be able to survive for much longer than a couple months or something. And so, so there's, there's definite, um, it's probably more accurate to talk about different strata within the working class. And, and I do think it's very clear that um, whether we like it or not, that, education has become a, you can call it a cultural cleavage within the broader working class. Um, this is just clear, not just in the United States, across the world, there's been, uh, you know, people like Thomas Piketty and um, David Shore, this political uh, uh, kind of pundit now, have been basically demonstrating empirically that you have this process of educational polarization amongst electorates, where you have the drift of sort of old industrial working class and other types of working class people uh, without college educations are shifting to parties of the right and um, uh, educated uh, populations are shifting towards parties that of the center or left that used to be parties of the working class. And so this process of educational polarization is actually real um, politically. You know, you had in 2020, a lot of uh, non-college educated um, black, brown, working class people voting for Trump. Um, and we all know that non-college educated white uh, voters are a big base for him. So, um, and, and I totally agree that we really need to think about uh, different segments of the professional class. Some are quite secure, some are quite doing quite well, but there are these processes, as you said, of proletarianization um, uh, where there's an erosion of autonomy in the workplace for teachers, for nurses. There's an erosion of their security and their even their benefits and their salaries are being attacked from all these different um, uh, bosses in the hospitals or in the uh, uh, college administrations or in uh, school uh, administrations. So, yeah. Um, and, and ultimately, I think one thing I want to make clear um, is that there's really nothing wrong with educated people or professional people doing politics or doing left politics or doing environmental politics or working class politics. And in fact, if you look at the history of the working class or socialist movements, I mean, they always have these strata, these intellectuals, these highly educated folks who shape these movements in the parties or in the unions. Uh, but the problem is, is, is if professional people are doing politics in a way that does not appeal to the working class and actually creates this kind of antagonistic outlook towards the working class, that's where you run into problems and that's uh, where we need to be more critical. Right. So um, but but there's definitely a need to kind of create this broader working class coalition that includes these educated folks for sure. 
yeah so the you know so we've we've gone through the, the, there's been a lot of critique here and and i think you know that's that's pretty uh you know i i think that that's pretty um consistent with a marxist tradition but <laughs> but you know we and 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 just to, to lay it out you know for folks on the radio we're talking to uh matthew hubbard he is a professor of of uh uh geography Mm-hmm. That's right. Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, talking about his book, Climate Change as Class War. And we've been talking about how, you know, the the environmental movement has basically centered around a politics of less, of saying that, saying that you know, uh, the way to fix climate change is you as a working person – all working people, working people across the world, especially in rich countries, quote unquote, uh, we're going to have to consume less. We simply have too much. Um, and 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 your your book says that this isn't this isn't really the way to go. So what is the alternative to that? What is the alternative to that in the policies prescriptions? Like, how do we actually what are the, the things that we can actually do to stop climate change and how do we get there you know as opposed to you you point out that the, the one of the the citizens climate lobby their their goal or their motto is to outsmart climate change you know in, in yeah. a sort of technocratic sense yeah. and that doesn't seem like a very viable strategy and even some of their prescriptions maybe you know hit or miss what would your strategy and your prescriptions be to fight to fight climate change so um First, I'd say that if you look at like, if anyone's deploying class politics in the climate fight, it's actually the right. And it's like the fossil fuel industry and the Koch brothers, because they will, whenever they talk about climate policy, they say it's going to cost jobs. It's going to, it's going to make your life cost more. It's going to raise your cost of living. And so they really, you know, liberals like to focus on their denial of the science, but their, their more consistent message is that climate policy will make your life worse. And when climate liberals do advocate things like carbon taxes and making energy costs more, it's hard to to blame the masses for believing these right wing people. Yeah. So to, to <laughs> if the right wing people are just repeating what <laughs> what the yeah. climate liberals are saying, you know, exactly. It's, it's really <laughs> unbelievable. So um, so what I say is and, you know, I was lucky to write this book when this kind of big excitement around a Green New Deal came around because. What I would say is that if you look at working class people's lives and what they are having trouble affording, which are things like, like I said before, like energy and food and housing more than ever these days, all these things are part of the sectors that we actually need to rapidly decarbonize, right? Energy, housing, um, uh, transportation, right? All these things that workers rely on day in, day day out. So our, our politics really uh, should not be about how you need to, uh, you know, consume less of all this stuff, but that could actually be about giving working class people more secure access, you know, green, green public housing or, you know, when they when AOC or uh, released the original Green New Deal document, she talked about a jobs guarantee where everyone had, you know, family sustaining incomes, but also she talked about Medicare for all, you know, it's like, um, people got mad at the Green New Deal for including healthcare, but the Green New Deal was really about saying there are two crises we're facing inequality and climate change, and we can attack them both by this kind of big public goods oriented uh, project that delivers material gains to the masses of working class people. So that I think that's one plank of a working class strategy, really just try to 
uh, build of um, universal public goods, whether it be a job guarantee or in my socialist dream, a, like sort of decommodified electricity as a human right. Um, by the way, you guys are in the Tennessee Valley Authority. The, the original Tennessee Valley Authority had a slogan, electricity for all, which is, I think, a really um, a slogan we use a lot today for healthcare. And, and, and in fact, the, the Sunrise Movement, when they sat in on uh, Nancy Pelosi's office for a Green New Deal, they had signs that said green jobs for all. So this idea of like delivering material gains for all, I think, is a really something we can't lose sight of. You know, we lost the, the Green New Deal presidential battle and Biden won and he is not really subscribed to this kind of public goods approach. So uh, that's kind of off the table for now. But hopefully the political winds will shift where we could build enough power where it could be on the table again. And to build that power, I think we can't uh, just rely on electoral shortcuts, as Jay McAlevey would say, of winning the presidency with Bernie Sanders. We have to go back to basics and build actually working class institutions um, that really are embedded in communities and people's lives. So that's, the, as you all know, that's the labor movement. That's the union movement. So it's really exciting to see all this sort of... Um, uh, I, I loved how you had Jonah Furman's uh, newsletter at the top of this show. You know, the strikes that are happening, but also the um, the massive increase in union uh, drives and union elections, whether it be Amazon or Starbucks. But what I argue in the book is that we really can't ignore that this climate struggles about energy and um, ultimately climate uh, or sort of energy experts agree that the pathway to decarbonization goes to the electric sector, electricity. We have to clean up electricity uh, so that we're generating all our electricity from clean sources, whether it be solar, wind, hydroelectricity, or nuclear. Um, and then we have to electrify uh, all these things that we don't rely on electricity for, like, like our cars and transportation, or like uh, the heat for our buildings. And if we can elect, uh, clean up electricity, electrify everything, that's the path. So um, what I argue in the book is that the electric utility sector is already one of the more unionized sectors in our economy. Um, it's 25% union density. It's represented by unions like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Utility Workers Union of America. And so these unions already have a base of power uh, of organized members. And um, to be fair, they, these unions can be quite conservative. <laughs> they can be quite aligned with the, the, the bosses, if you will, um, in this kind of business unionist tradition. But ultimately, if we're a climate movement, we want to transform electricity, we cannot ignore these unions. We have to put them at not only a seat at the table, but they need to be a driver's seat of sort of shaping our, our policy frameworks, shaping our strategies. But I think the climate movement can also make a case to these unions that if they aren't getting more organized and proactive about putting themselves at the center of a green energy transition, they're actually threatened. Their members are threatened. Their unions are threatened by what I would call a kind of uh, cutthroat green renewable capitalism that uh, right now, renewable, the renewable energy industry is pretty anti-union. Um, a lot of renewable energy projects are rely on a really insecure transient workforce that and they're hostile towards unions. And also, by the way, a lot of renewable energy projects in the United States are funded by Wall Street, by some of the richest people who take advantage of these um, tax credits that are used to finance renewable projects. So this kind of Wall Street anti-union regime is trying to push through this kind of green capitalism that 
that really threatens these unions um, in the electric sector. So uh, we have to kind of organize with these unions um, to, 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 to really for their own survival. And I think we can make that case to them. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I think we, we just can't ignore these unions. You know, uh, I've worked with a lot of what are called climate justice organizations or people that are trying to build like public power campaigns. And they're, they're always able to get like teachers unions and nurses unions on board, what I would call low carbon unions. And that's great. And we need to build solidarity with these kind of low carbon unions, but we're not going to be able to, to win this uh, struggle unless we can build real uh, coalitions with the unions that are at the heart of the struggle in energy right. and electricity. And uh, I would also just include the building trades more broadly, which are notoriously conservative. But if we're going to solve climate change, it's going to be it's going to mean building a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of right. new infrastructure. And so we're going to have to figure out how to win over some of these building trade unions at the core of this of this fight. And so uh, and I think given the Green New Deal is kind of off the table, that, that there's really nowhere else to go for for this kind of strategy is to rebuild the labor movement and union movement. And that's where we got to go right now. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you mentioned or, or contrary to that being kind of a utopian vision of social change, I think that you contend that this is actually, um, you know, no shortcuts. But but this is the closest thing to a shortcut is that we've got to um, we've got to revitalize the labor movement, particularly the labor movement in the electricity sector. And you, you a line that I really liked from your book uh, was something uh, something about. Your students always ask you how they can fight climate change, and and most of the common answers are you know reduce your carbon footprint, yeah. buy an electric car, or something like that. And you say join a union, uh, and that's cool as hell. And yeah. uh, but but I mean it's true, right? It, uh, you know the yeah. the IBEW has a huge. Uh, and and there we've got two IBEW locals that sponsor the show, and and they're yeah. you know leaders in the, in those unions listen to the program. Uh, I don't think amazing. that they're as involved in like uh you know t- the TVA stuff uh, it, it's mostly you know kind of more electricity building stuff but right, but you right, know right. i mean these are the people that are going to be that that are at the center of this kind of stuff and Absolutely. and so these are the these are the folks that that if anybody's going to be able to lead us out of it, it it's going to be them and right. and unions have done stuff like this before you talked in the book about um Mazaki's fight with yes. the oil chemical atomic workers union uh, yes. to pass OSHA and the IBEW's yes. fight against deregulation as Absolutely. sort of case studies of, of unions <laughs> leading legislative changes. Can you talk to us about those um, those historical uh, uh, yeah. instances? Yeah, thanks. It's, it's so exciting to talk about this. <laughs> uh, the, the the thing you when you start to learn about this history is that is you just even in the wake of all these attacks on unions, we have to realize unions are still extremely powerful like they still have incredible resources where they can do things like sponsor radio programs and right, and right. what I, what these case studies show me is that when the unions deploy their resources in a in a broad based campaign they can build this mass base for a type of politics they're trying to build so in the case of Tony Mazaki he was working his union members were working in extremely toxic chemical factories you know oil refineries chemical uh, uh, production facilities and he was noticing these workers were getting sick. They were um, getting cancer. They were being exposed to really toxic stuff. And um, what he decided is that the union really needed to, and he clearly understood they're getting sick because the bosses are are not willing to invest in safety precautions. 
and that we need to fight them. And so what he decided to do is actually bring some scientists, talk about believe science. You know, he brought some scientific experts on toxic, toxic exposure and he brought them on tour. He would go union local to union local all across the country to try to educate the workers about the risks that they were facing in these factories. And, and frankly, to get them kind of fired up and angry about what the bosses are doing to their health. And he succeeded, you know, by building this sort of broad base within each union local. He, you know, got these workers to flood Congress with letters about the need for something like the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. But he also got workers to testify in congressional hearings. But he also got these workers to tell their family members, their community members. And, and, and Tony was clear, like he always would say, we have enough lobbyists in Washington that are trying to pass union friendly legislation, what we need is to build a mass base. And so what he did is deployed the union's resources to, to, to just launch this nationwide campaign that built uh, step by step, local by local, this mass base. And, you know, they got Richard Nixon to sign off on, uh, on OSHA, you know, not exactly a, a union friendly left winger. So that was incredible. And then fast forward into the 90s, um, there was this incredible effort to deregulate the electricity sector, um, which there's a lot we could talk about. But unions, uh, particularly the IBEW, saw that as a threat to to not only their members and their wages and, you know, it might lead to shutdowns of power plants where they have a lot of good union jobs. They also saw it as a threat to really the reliability of the grid and the secure. And, and, and that's another thing. These workers take pride in really delivering this vital service to people, to hospitals, to, and so they saw this deregulation as something that's going to make the electric grid more insecure. And, 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 and so they said, we got to fight for this to, 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 so that we can continue to deliver this service. And, and little did they know, um, they, they really launched this fight in the nineties. They sent out an organizing binder to every union local and, and sort of gave them strategies. And again, all these resources they can, they can deploy uh, strategies like, you know, how to write a letter to the editor about this issue, how to do a press conference about it. And, um, and then, they did this organizing in the 1990s. And then famously, you had this wave of blackouts in California, I think it was 2001, which everyone was clear was basically because of regulation in California. And so that kind of, in addition to all this union organizing, really put a lot of cold water on all this deregulation. And so, um, again, when unions kind of deploy their resources, their substantial resources to these types of campaigns, they can win because they still have power bases, they still have institutional resources to deploy. And so um, I think, again, if we could imagine the unions doing this in a sort of campaign for a, a energy, a green energy transition that is not advantage, advantaging the renewable capitalists, but that advantages unions, that could be another example of how to marshal union resources for this kind of nationwide campaign. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And 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 reading that, I I knew about uh, Mazaki. I, I think that his, his, his he is a case study is a lot more well known among kind of labor left activists. But but that was really I I really enjoyed reading about that IBEW uh, campaign against deregulation. That was uh, that that was I'm I'm uh, I've got it on my list to try to find out some more about that and maybe see if we can talk to some people about that and and Les Leopold uh, is the author of the uh, the biographer for Tony Mazaki um, yeah. he 
is definitely somebody that I want to get on the program at some point. So I, I think that your book does a really good job of uh, laying out some of the issues with the climate uh, climate movement today and uh, talking about ways forward and and looking to history for uh for the way forward and and i really enjoyed it i thought it was uh, i thought it was great i would highly recommend people buy it uh adam did you have anything else that you wanted to ask no i, I just wanted to see if there's maybe anything that we've left out so far in the conversation that you really wanted to you know share with our listeners let's see um the one thing I was wanting to get in there is that um, the Tennessee Valley Authority, by the way, is uh, we just wrote an I wrote an article with Fred Stafford and Jacobin where we I, we discovered that it's 60 percent unionized. Right? So, I mean, like that's a level of union density you don't see about anywhere. And so um, and in our article, uh, what we point out is that there's a lot of these green NGO types that want to shift all to renewables and want to shift to like community energy, they're actually become quite critical of the TVA and, and, and some of them have even advocated breaking it up. In fact, Obama had thrown, thrown the idea around of privatizing the TVA. Um, so that's, that's disastrous. If you want a model of kind of uh, a, a big uh, public power that, that, you know, I think they have something like 14 million customers, 60% union density. Um, and, and actually, they just announced a, a, a research uh, partnership, I think, with maybe Oak Ridge Laboratory, where they're exploring research into all kind of cutting edge, new, um, low carbon technology, uh, uh, some of it in the nuclear realm, but, uh, you know, uh, some of it in the kind of green hydrogen realm. And so they're exploring like cutting edge technologies. And, and, and so whereas a lot of the green left kind of thinks we're going to have just like small scale renewables and localities spread across the, the landscape, I think TVA represents this kind of it represents something at the scale of the crisis we face, a massive uh, federally owned public power uh, 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 utility that could expand. And in fact, Bernie Sanders and um he took this from the People's Policy Project, like this idea that if we want to solve climate change, we need we need something like a green TVA that could massively expand clean energy production all across the country. And um, so I think uh, that kind and of that model, provides a, a really good a, a good product, a cheap product, yeah. uh, uh, reliable and and is already much more clean energy than than others you know the the percentage of of hydro and nuclear energy that the tva uses is is when you combine both of those um it's something like 60 percent and only like 39 percent of it is is fossil fuels um so it's a real and and the price is much cheaper like if you move south uh into you know the more southern parts of Alabama, their utility yep. bills are much yep. higher. They have to deal with Alabama Power and another right. sponsor of the program, Energy Alabama. They're constantly having fights with Energy uh, with Alabama Power, um, and and they're insanely high rates on mm-hmm. customers. Uh, it's you know uh, the the difference is market, I think, and and you know you get people. Uh, yeah, I think that people are very satisfied with with the service that they get from the TVA and, and it's a, it's a product that, that I think that, you know, more than some would be easy to expand. Yeah. And and, I mean, in its origins in the thirties, that was their, 
maybe their number one goal was not only delivering power to rural areas that didn't have it, but also delivering cheaper power. They really wanted to deliver the cheapest power possible. And, and that vision, again, is completely lost. Like most climate advocates, again, think we should be paying more for, for energy to kind of internalize the emissions. But this vision of, of, of more and cheaper, clean power, right? If it's clean, I don't think, you know, for cli- at least from the climate perspective, we don't need to worry about uh, uh, more consumption of it, right? So, you know, this vision of, of giving cheaper power is something the climate movement could learn tons from. And that's why people love uh, the TVA in that region. So, Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your time. We went a little long, but I think it was uh, I think it was good. I enjoyed it just as I enjoyed the book, which is Climate Change as Class War. Uh, Matthew Huber is the author. You can buy it on Powell's if you use the union's link. 7.5% of your purchase will go to the ILWU Local 5's Strike Fund, which is the union that represents workers at Powell's Books. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. All right, everybody. Uh, Yeah, like I said, we've been talking to Matthew Huber about climate change as class war. We are going to take a break really quick. On the other side, we're going to be talking about uh, the Birmingham Starbucks workers winning um, some interesting conversations about abortion in the state of Alabama and uh, and and then we're going to be wrapping up. I don't think that we're going to have an overtime today. Um, I didn't have time to prepare anything uh, for an overtime because because of being sick. So uh, so we're just going to call it quits after the main show today. But uh, that said, we'll be right back. This is the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man-hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. 
please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project, or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs, from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Labor creates all wealth. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. We just finished a conversation with Matt Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War. Um, we ended the conversation talking about the TVA. We got a mention from Martha and Mel Sutton in the chat, uh, members of the West Alabama Labor Council, I believe. Tell the folks to watch Built for the People. The story of the TVA. So that's on my list now. Built for the people. The story of the TVA. I'm going to see if I can uh, find out something about that. Of course, uh, the primaries were last week. And Joe and Dana Marshall in the chat uh, say 23% turnout. Ivy won with no runoff likely. uh, And she's likely the next governor with 12% of the vote. Um, Yep. It's an indictment on on uh, on the system that we've got. Not great, not great. Um, but something that is great, some 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 good election news that we that we have from last week is that workers at the unionizing Starbucks store in Birmingham, Alabama, won their election by a landslide. 
by a landslide, 27 to 1. In a tweet, they said, Partners, be proud of yourselves. You made history. Thank you to our community. We love you with all our heart. Solidarity forever. Uh, incredible, incredible news. We got a few quotes from the uh, baristas and workers uh, there. From one black worker, um, they said that, I feel like there was a deliberate attempt to keep black employees from voting. Starbucks black partners and customers deserve better. I felt a Philadelphia moment, and I was being targeted for just being black with my name not being on the list to vote. That is insane from a shift supervisor uh, I'm beyond proud of my store we are the first but not the last we shall continue forward as partners becoming partners living our authentic values and serving each other and our community solidarity to all and from a from another barista I'm very proud of all my fellow baristas at the downtown Birmingham location I'm happy happy to see that we were all able to come forward and say enough is enough to help stop ending the treatment of feeling like machines and to allow us to shape the future of bettering the Starbucks experience one barista and customer at a time. Extremely great, uh, great statements, great news for baristas at the downtown Starbucks, uh, downtown Birmingham Starbucks location. Um, really, really good to see. And like they've told us uh, multiple times now, they're uh, they're in conversations with Starbucks employees across the state of Alabama, and uh, there's going to be more. So we are waiting with bated breath for that news. Um, and they're not the only ones in the South experiencing blowouts. And a tweet from Stephen Greenhouse, he lists some landslide wins in the South for Starbucks Workers United. In just the past couple of weeks, we had Birmingham, of course, uh, winning 27 to 1 in Louisville, Kentucky winning 19 to 5 in Knoxville, Tennessee winning 13 to 4 in Richmond, Virginia 17 to 1, 22 to 3, 11 to 2, 13 to 8, 19 to 0, all of those like a bunch of elections in Richmond in Boone, North Carolina 33 to 2 in Augusta, Georgia 26 to 5 in Farmville, Virginia 12 to 3 and in Tallahassee, Florida 16 to 1. Blowouts. Dozens of blowouts in the South for Starbucks baristas. We love to see it. We love to see it. Um, Really great news. Glad to see Alabama on the map. And like you said, uh, after some fairly dismal election results, whichever way you look at it here in Alabama, it's it's nice to see some some actual wins at the election process uh, Mm -hmm. at the workplace as opposed to the ballot box. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And when local news reported on this for the workers, uh, there were a lot of folks in the comments, you know, talking about, oh, great, this is going to increase costs, inflation, blah, blah, you know, all all that good stuff. And um, and so I just wanted to mention I, I just wanted to play this clip from Means Morning News. They were talking about inflation last week, about some reporting from The Guardian. And, you know, and and we wanted to play this because the conversation about inflation is so, you, you know, we talked about with Matt Huber how when there was a push to... There, there was at one time in this country a push to make illegal single-use plastics to tackle the problem 
of littering and this this environmental issue at the point of production where it actually comes from. And then the industry people were able to come and, and create this whole narrative about about oh it's it's not it's not us it's you you should you should just throw it away in the proper place don't litter you know they did this whole campaign about it and well with similarly with inflation we've got all these industry moguls that are trying to convince us that our wages that are barely oftentimes not even keeping up with the pace of inflation are the cause of inflation somehow right i mean <laughs> right now the inflation is about double the wage increases at least right. from you know the data that i've seen so while yeah. at the same time executive pay is still going through the roof i mean right and stock buybacks stock buybacks profits are increasing so let's go ahead and just play this clip from means morning news about inflation Recent investigation by The Guardian has revealed that the so-called inflation crisis in the U.S. is actually just a huge transfer of wealth from the working class to capitalists. Persistent myth around price increases is that companies are just reacting to rising costs of labor and raw materials by increasing their own prices in order not to lose money. The reality is companies are taking advantage of relatively small increases in costs to jack up prices and enjoy world historic profit margins. And this cuts across several different industries. The Guardian looked at 100 top U.S. companies and examined their profit margins from the most recent quarter with measures from two years ago, before the pandemic took hold. And in case after case, companies enjoyed profits well above what they had experienced and well above whatever cost increases they've had to absorb associated with the virus. Median profit increase of the 100 companies examined was 49%. Meanwhile, workers' wages from the first quarter before the pandemic to the most recent quarter this year only went up by 1.6%. After an initial surge in wages at the start of the pandemic, worker pay decreased steadily as companies rolled back stuff like hazard pay, which further accelerated their profit growth. Look at some of these numbers. Mattel Corporation a profit growth of 111,400%. BP, an increase of 12,005%. Caterpillar, 958% profit increase. Swimming in cash thanks to their price increases, these companies have spent billions enriching investors through stock buybacks. Some companies were even losing money before the pandemic, but under so-called inflation, They are more profitable than ever. UPS reported a quarterly profit loss of $106 million in the quarter before the pandemic, but in the most recent quarter, a profit of $3.1 billion, allowing the company to spend almost $7 billion on stock buybacks. Yeah. I mean, companies that were not profitable before the pandemic are now so profitable, they're spending billions of dollars on stock buybacks. A thousand percent increases. It's hundred. Uh, there's one company, Mattel, has a one hundred forty-four thousand four hundred percent increase in their profits from before the pandemic started. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that we shared this because the inflation conversation really has been just dominated by BS, frankly, uh, because when they're not blaming workers and unions for the increase in prices. Uh, folks are saying it's it's Joe Biden, 
And I mean, listeners of this program know that we're not, you know, Joe Biden fanboys by any means. But if you really think that the reason prices are going up in the grocery store and at the gas pump can be laid solely at the feet of Joe Biden or at the at, at the hands of workers and the unions that represent these workers, you're mistaken. You're wrong. You're just wrong uh, because we see clearly the ways in which capitalist firms in many industries have monopoly power, especially, you know, meat industry where we've seen a lot of uh, rising prices. So there's there's a combination of factors, monopoly power and the fact that they can raise these prices and get away with it, because what are we going to do? Right. In many cases, we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about, you know, products that we don't have much of a choice. You know, folks have to buy groceries. Folks have to buy fuel. And so they can raise these prices. And it's not going into the pockets of the workers producing these products. Not at all. And, you know, there are other legitimate issues going on uh, contributing to the inflation crisis in terms of, COVID and the disruptions in the supply chain, um, the war in Ukraine is having a major effect. Ukraine and Russia are both major exporters of grain and other products. And, of course, it's not just the war, but actually the American-led sanctions on Russia, which is also uh, contributing to this economic crisis. And, you know, the other part of that in terms of the supply chain is – for years, companies have moved towards this just-in-time uh, logistics, and so they're not – they have not been keeping the inventories they used to. Uh, they've been having uh, these just-in-time production supply chains, and it doesn't take much to cause a lot of disruption. Uh, one thing I think that we could see as an opportunity there is is in the workers in these industries who have such a, a – piece of leverage in terms of a supply chain. And I hope that those workers can leverage that to uh, improve things for themselves and for the rest of us as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and, and with that, I think that we're going to wrap up here on the program. Like I said, we're not going to be doing an overtime today. Haven't prepared anything for an overtime um, because I've been sick this week and so I've been kind of recovering during the during the period where I would be prepping for the show. So, uh forgive us for that but we did want to we wanted to sign off with you know just a recognition of the um you know the absolute horror horror that happened um this week in texas on tuesday uh in uvalde it's you know uh workers and children the children of workers uh being slaughtered um cops not coming to their aid uh Cops going in, taking their children, and leaving the scene. Just, yeah. um, the 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 children being on the phone with nine one one, begging them to send cops in. Um, you know, it's just I can't. I I as somebody who's never been a teacher and who doesn't have any children, you know, I I, I can't imagine. And Adam has, you know, Adam's been in both of those shoes, and so he he can probably speak. But but just you know, j- just for me, I can't imagine what those folks are going through, and you know, sending them all all, all the love and and solidarity in the world. And uh, you know, I, I just um, 
you know, I and 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 I, I, I'm just hopeful that this can that that at the very least we begin to understand that more cops and more guns is like not the answer uh yeah. you know um I, i'm not even really sure what to say honestly yeah. um uh, you know i am a father i'm a former educator i'm a from a family of educators uh who go to school every day and and think about these threats and um I, yeah I, i'm kind of at a loss for words on it just that it's it's a horror that shouldn't have to happen doesn't have to happen we could do so much better in this country, and we should. And, um, yeah, just sending my love and solidarity to all those who are affected and, and all those who are, are dealing with this, um, even from, from the sidelines and, and traumatized just by the news coverage alone. So uh, we, we, just, we, we have to do better. Uh, we have a profoundly sick society that is heavily armed. And uh, we see the results week after week, whether it's Uvalde or Buffalo. Um, it's we're we're in a time of crisis in this country and in this world, and I think the only way we're going to be able to get through this is is by coming together uh, and, and working together along our common interest. Yeah, yeah, and and you know I don't think that we we don't have anything. Uh you know, lots of lots of other folks um, have spoken to it better than we could, so I right. think that we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, but we appreciate your time. Leave us a voicemail, or uh, you know, find us online, and we will see you next week.